And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I am with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whomever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, this is a really long section to be covering in one week. But this is where the Gospel of Mark starts becoming really tricky to divide up into nice, discrete sections. I mean, you know, nothing about Mark is actually able to be completely compartmentalized, obviously, but there are some obvious places where you can break after an hour and some that you can't. The section right before this, the third passion prediction, we covered back on the Passover. And so to understand this in context, we will quickly review Yeshua's or Jesus's final and most complete prediction of his own betrayal, arrest, abuse, crucifixion, and resurrection. Before this, they didn't know how or, you know, well, they didn't know where or when or or. And now that they know where, Jerusalem, they have 
to be pretty darn sure that the time is imminent, all right? They also know that not only Jews, but Gentiles now will be involved. Because of the scourging mentioned, they have to know that he will die by crucifixion because scourging always accompanied that. It was actually a legal prerequisite. So we will read that again uh, real quick before we start and then head on into the wealth of material this week on our three blind men, James, John, and Bartimaeus. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All right. As usual, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Okay. First, you know, we're going to go over that heartbreaking and shocking passion prediction, you know, that left very little to the imagination before we head into the problem we see after each one of the passion predictions. Namely, the disciples will make it very clear painfully clear that they are completely unaware of what sort of kingdom they're going to be entering into. Um, this is um, chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. All right. And so let's start in um, this week's um, scripture starts in um, chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So many red flags are going up. And you'd think James and John were playing for the Kansas City Chiefs. No, I'm sorry. You know... David, if you're ever listening to this, my dear brother, <laughs> and all other fans, you know, when I wrote this, the Super Bowl was four days before, and, you know, the pain was fresh in my mind. 
Um, but let's translate this for everyone who wants to see this in the best possible light, far removed from the context of what has gone before and honor and shame culture, which is what we have to do. We have to separate it from all context to make this not sound horrifying. Teacher, you just said that you're going to be crucified in Jerusalem and we're still willing to go with you. So in exchange, you owe us. Whoa. Okay, maybe that is a tad bit over the top, but it captures what they're saying here. They're about to go through hell and want some assurances before it happens. They still aren't sure about this being raised from the dead thing. That much is clear. But they do want to make sure that regardless of what happens, they will come out on top in the end. I don't know about you, but anyone who wants me to agree to stipulations before I hear the, what they have to say really worries me. It, it's kind of like when you get private messaged on social media and, and you know they're about to ask you for money. And it's like, ugh. again, anyway, uh, verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. In your glory. That's what I want to cover first. This is eschatological language here. He's told them that he will die and be resurrected in three days. Now, unless they think this is symbolic language, and they might, they are looking for, for they're looking toward the future eschatological kingdom in such a way that they think that their idea their idea of the messianic age is imminent. They think he is going to Jerusalem to set up the kind of kingdom they are familiar with suffering under. One that where they will be afforded positions of authority like they see with the chief priests or with the Roman bureaucracy. Yeshua knows this is where they're aiming because he addresses it later. But that's what they want from him. That's their heart's desire is to be right hand and left hand men. And if he says yes, then be certain that the brothers will then divide over who is on the right, the far more elevated position, and who is on the left, the still great, but meh compared to the right. Okay, so what they're saying is when you inaugurate the messianic kingdom where Jews are on top and the wealth of the nations is pouring in and the Gentiles are crushed underfoot forever, we want to be the most honored guys at your side. You can do that for us, right, buddy? Um, and, you know, they could have found stuff in the prophets to justify all of this when you read it with that agenda. So it's not like they were getting this from nowhere, all right? Um, you know, there's blind ambition, and then there's blind ambition. Their ambition is blind because they cannot see what's ahead. But they're about to get a real big dose of reality. To sit at the right and left hand of the monarch would give them the right to sit as judges over the rest of, the, of Israel and, by extension, the nations. This is no small or humble or servantly thing they are requesting. This isn't just about seating arrangements, although it would also put them at his right and left for the messianic banquet. 
Now, uh, verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And I gotta say, I hate saying this verse. It's just, it's, it does not trip off the tongue. Ah, oh, too many W's and too many baptizes. So why does he say you do not know what you're asking? Well, on one hand, because they think they are asking for position, but there won't be that sort of position within Yeshua's inaugurated new creation reality they're going to have to live with. Never in their lives will they know anything other than the sort of authority that comes with servanthood, rejection, and suffering. On the other hand, because we know the rest of the story, we know that two criminals, two actual rebels, will hang on crosses to his right side and his left side the moment he comes in his glory as the Son of Man, on display for the world to see. Their expectations couldn't possibly be more misguided or off-base. And what is this cup and this baptism? What's this language about? Now, in the Hebrew scriptures repeatedly, and this is important because of the third prediction he just gave, the cup of God's wrath is a symbol of being handed over to your merciless enemies, specifically the Gentiles. Let's look at the use of the cup in Isaiah 51, and this will be a review from when we covered this last year, and I will link that teaching in the transcript. Uh, starting in verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of suffering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the, thus says your Lord, the Lord, who, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Now remember from that series, the servant of the servant songs is portrayed as the perfect representative of Israel. In every way Israel is tempted and succumbs, the servant is tempted and remains faithful. Every effect of the cup of wrath poured out on Israel, excuse me, 
is um, going to come on the servant and he will remain faithful. He will bear the burden for his people so that Yahweh can remove the cup of staggering. That sin nature on the insides that causes his people to stumble. The cup of wrath will pass from his people and will instead be drained to the dregs by the enemy and his demons and sin and death will be gutted of their monopoly on humanity. That cup will be emptied by the only one who can swallow it and all of it and remain steadfast. The only one who loves enough to do it. And so this will be a particular type of baptism. And one of the interesting things about the Greek word baptisma is that it was never used to translate anything in the Septuagint and only occurs 19 times in the New Testament. Of course, the Septuagint is the second slash third century uh, BCE translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. It was the authorized translate. It was the first authorized translation. I think it was the only one too at that point of the Hebrew scriptures. That makes it really difficult to assign meaning to other than, uh, you know, when it refers to actual washings, which obviously it does not in this case. Now, Yeshua was already baptized by John and I imagine they all were. All right. So we must be looking at a metaphor here for his coming ordeal. Now, this sounds like last week's teaching on the rich young ruler where he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, oh yeah, whatever we need to do, we can totally do. That's what they're saying. Whatever works you want, we're your guys. But this isn't about that and far from it, okay? Uh, instead, this is their Peter moment. It's actually also John's second moment. You know, when Peter said, um, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And, and then he's literally the only one who actually ends up denying him. And even though the, the rest of them ran away, only Peter actually denied him. Um, I've noticed that Yahweh seems to intensely dislike our bragging. And when we do it, we open ourselves up to be tested. It's like the enemy is waiting in the wings, and as soon as we say, I would never, simply because we've never faced a stiff enough temptation, um, then he's like totally allowed to send temptation our way. At least that's what I've noticed with some folks, and especially when they have a calling on their life. I'm not talking about the braggarts who just boast about everything. I'm talking about people who lean on their own strength and do not acknowledge their need for God's empowerment and mercy. And I think every person I know who's gone on to deny our Savior first said exactly what Peter said, and they crumbled under temptation. So I, I never say that anymore because, good grief, I know I'm capable of being an idiot. I'm just not aware of how much of an idiot I'm capable of being in the future, all right? I only have past failures to go on, and those are bad enough. Thank you very much. You know, no confidence in my flesh anymore. Yeah, he's... I'd say he's broken me of it, but no, my own actions have broken me of that. But, um... May, it reminds me... I'm going to go off script here. Reminds me of when I was reading one of Richard Wormbrand's books, and it was either, um, it, it was probably, 
a torture for Christ. And, and it was really interesting when he was talking about people who he was in prison with and tortured with and starved with and, and went through all this stuff with, and they remained faithful to God. These were, um, priests and different clergy, um, behind, you know, the iron curtain. And man, they, they were firm and they, they stood firm and man, nothing could break them. Then they got out of jail and being in the good life again, one of them immediately just divorces his wife and marries a fresh young thing and others did other things. And so we all have our own temptation. Okay. Some of us are too spiteful to give in when tortured, you know, but give us, um, luxury right afterward or what looks like luxury after you've spent, you know, five years in a, in a communist prison and can't handle that. You know, they totally give themselves over to the enemy. So we all have our thing. So let's be humble. I don't want to find out what my stuff is. Okay. Back to the Bible. And Yeshua said to them, that cup I drink, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Yeshua is about to drink the cup of wrath of all the forces of the enemy poured out, poured out on him through the agency of the Jewish leadership and the Gentile rulers. And the same thing will happen to them in the future. They will endure the wrath of the Jewish leadership. They will be arrested and beaten and rejected and killed in Jerusalem and Judea and the Galilee and in the Gentile nations. They will never enjoy the kind of power and authority and comforts and the kind of life they saw and coveted. They thought they would be on top, but they would become the servants of all the world and even the servants of those whom they despised. Okay. They thought they would work for Yeshua, but they were going to have to live and die for him instead. All right. Uh, verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And of course, we know immediately this refers to the two criminals crucified to his left and right. In the kingdom, it refers to whoever. We just have no idea. Maybe it will not be one of the 12 at all. It won't be me. I am about 120% sure of that and maybe even more. <laughs> And it's not any of you guys either, right? Uh, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Unspoken truth here. Because they all wanted to ask first. <laughs> Come on now. I mean, this is an honor-shame society. It wasn't that the brothers simply asked for better seats. They asked to be an authority over and above the other ten. This is a straight-up power play. And the other 10 were all angry. They hadn't thought of it first. I guarantee it. Right? Because, you know, that's how we are. Okay. Um, verse 42. And Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. All right, so the insult here is a lot worse than it appears on the surface. 
This isn't just a teaching moment. He's telling them they're acting like the Romans, whom they despise. He's saying, why do you hate the Romans? It's because of how they treat people. And the reason they treat people that way is because they have the kind of power and authority that you are asking for. Do you really think that you are so different that you'll be immune to the evil they do if you had the same power and wealth? You know, it, it, it wasn't so long ago that the nation had seen what happens when quote-unquote Torah-observant Jews finally had political autonomy when they ousted the Seleucids from power in the late 2nd century BCE. The only reason Rome was in charge was because of the civil unrest and outright war between the Hasmonean priest kings, all right, who were increasingly and unspeakably brutal. And that, oop, I'm running over, and I'll be right back in a few minutes. Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context. It's three blind men, James, John, and Bartimaeus, but only one of them gets cured this week. The other two, it's going to take a while. Anyway, we're just talking about how um, Yeshua had really, really flat out insulted James and John and, and all of them, because they all had these dreams of grandeur. And he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And why did he say that? He said that because James and John had just, after the third passion prediction, after Yeshua saying, I'm going to die, and he really made it clear he's going to be crucified because he mentioned the scourging, which is was a prerequisite for um, crucifixion. And, and they had said, well, when you come in your glory, eschatological glory, uh, you know, um, messianic kingdom glory, uh, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? And it's like, well, you know, you're going to die, but uh, what's in it for us? Anyway, he had just, he he was saying, you know what? You guys hate the Romans, but you're wanting to be like the Romans. You think that, you know, just because you have the Torah and God, that you're not going to be exactly the same kind of people that the Romans are if you wield that kind of worldly authority. Um... And I mean, they just had to look back a few generations to the descendants of the Hasmoneans who started out just as rulers and the high priest, but then, you know, grandsons wanted to be king. And they were willing to kill each other and starve each other and even imprison their own mom in order to make that happen. Um, as a matter of fact, the only reason that the Romans were even in charge is because they stepped in because of the infighting. There was an actual civil war going on. 
within the Hasmonean family. And uh, they were brutal. They were unspeakably brutal. They crucified Jews. Ale Excuse me. Goodness sakes, I'm hiccuping. Alexander Janaeus, um, he, he crucified 800 Pharisees, killed their wives and children in front of them. All right? He... Their abuses were equal to the worst of, of Roman abuses, okay? Just killing their own people over, over religious differences. So anyway, Yeshua was telling them this is not the way. Um, being Jews and having the Torah and following the temple service and having the daily sacrifices and even performing them personally didn't prevent the sorts of abuses that that came with that sort of ambition and power, you know, because the Hasmoneans were doing that. Yeshua says, you know, or in other words, you are not ignorant of the way the world works and how the people you aspire to be behave. Now, throughout the Gospels, we catch glimpses of exactly the sorts of things the disciples would do if suddenly given that kind of authority. James and John wanted to slaughter the Samaritans over, you know, um, over simple rejection. Peter took up a sword and cut off a man's ear. Who knows what the others were thinking about? I don't want to know what the others were thinking about. They're probably really glad it wasn't recorded. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So greatness in this kingdom is not to be had through wealth or status or violence or by any normal human institution. Those are all incompatible with how the kingdom works. Now, think about it. Yeshua told us the kingdom of heaven was invading or infiltrating the earth through himself and his ministry. And what did he do? Well, not what they wanted him to do. They, uh, for one, you know, he was fighting absolutely the wrong enemy, quote unquote, wrong enemy. So how does he begin this? You know, the first command is bad enough, but whoever would be great among you, the 12, must be your, the 12's servant. So this is an easier, you know, love, this is, you know, love your neighbor well, you know, who exactly counts as my neighbor sort of expression. And the 12 could then pretend the rest of the way to Jerusalem, how committed they are to serving the other 11. You know, sometimes you'll hear a, serv a sermon from someone talking about servant leadership, and but you know how they really are? Okay, not everybody, but some of these guys. Almost anyone can make a show of serving their own group of friends and colleagues, but Yeshua is about to blow that out of the water. Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. All. Okay, but whoever wants to be the very greatest first must be a slave of all. Not just the twelfth, but all. Of course, Yeshua is describing himself because he will not only act the part of servant towards the twelve at the Last Supper, when he strips down and washes their disgusting first century, never seen antibacterial soap or foot powder in their lives, feet. But, you know, he's also going to suffer and die on behalf of the world. 
even the Gentiles and Samaritans. When Yeshua says all in this case, it is not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating. He is calling them and us to get over ourselves and be beneath everyone. Not in a self-defacing, uh, mock humility sort of way, but in a self-sacrificing and real way. Verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember again, this is right on the heels of the third passion prediction. And this is, in my opinion, actually the last line of it. This time he states the reason for the three predictions and his reason for death. He's saying, even I, you know, who goes around working miracles and healing and raising the dead and setting every demon to flight and multiplying bread and fishes. Even I, the son of man, came for the purpose not to be heralded and treated like a worldly king, but to serve the humanity that I created in the beginning. Because remember, John says that Yeshua is the word through whom all things were created by fixing what only I can fix and to give my life as the source of life itself to redeem men from their enslavement to the Pharaoh of sin and death and all the outward trappings of following the beast kingdom. And I will do it by giving up my life to the very people who on one hand claim to be religious experts and the doorkeepers of the kingdom of heaven. And on the other hand, those who claim to have brought peace to the world namely the Jew Jewish leadership and the Romans. And he is giving his life for a ransom, for, as a ransom for many, police, from the Septuagint's translation of Isaiah 53's Rabim, the many whom the servant would die for. Yeshua came for this reason. This wasn't plan B. This was always the plan. Like a clockmaker fixes the clock, so the creator fixes the creation. We've talked about this before. No one else can do it. No one else can restore us to image bearer status through the inauguration of the new covenant promised by Yahweh through Jeremiah that would not give us more laws, but new hearts that would desire more than external obedience, but would submit to radical internal transformation. Okay, but the thing is, we had to see the cost. We had to see how serious our level of bondage is. The lengths that Yahweh had to go to in order to overcome and to allow us to overcome through his draining death and oppression of its power by filling it to the full with life and nonviolence. We had to see the reason why we owe Yeshua our undivided allegiance as the king to whom God has in his own words, turned over all authority in heaven and on earth. The resurrection proved his right to make that claim and to expect our absolute allegiance in return. And I have to add this important thing. Yeshua speaks of what he will give in response to their talking about what they want. All right. At this point, and until after the resurrection, they are completely blinded to what kind of king he is and what it means to be a true follower, which is why this seemingly sudden change of topic actually isn't a change of topic at all. With Mark, it rarely is. Verse 46, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, the pilgrim trail from Galilee, 
from about a third of the way down um, between the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee across to the eastern side of the Jordan River until you were, you know, across from Jericho. At that point, they crossed over, traveled through Jericho, and then on from there to Jerusalem. That means that they're almost there, or about 15 miles as the crow flies. But it's a rough 15 miles on the Roman roads. There is an altitude change of 3,400 feet. That makes for somewhere between six and seven hours of walking for a relatively healthy person without breaks. Now, this says they came to Jericho and says nothing about what they did there. The only thing recorded is they're leaving along with his disciples in a great crowd, which is not police oklos like normal. It's a hikanos oklos. This is this is a different entirely different sort of crowd from those who are generally following him. That is probably why they used a different word. These are pilgrims headed to the feast and not followers hanging on his every word. I do find it interesting that police is used of the crowds that follow him and Hikanos is used for general crowds. Not all Israel will be saved sort of thing. All right. Remember I told you that Mark was likely written for a Roman Christian audience? A mixed group of um, Jews and Gentiles, where Gentiles would be the majority, but they would all be Greek speakers. And that we know this because of all the Latin loan words thrown in? Well, we don't have any Latin loaners here, but it is really odd to be translating Bartimaeus, which is Aramaic, into the Greek son of Timaeus, unless much of the audience was unfamiliar with such an obvious appellation. And where is the blind beggar sitting? The word translated roadside is hodos, our Isaiah 42:16 word for all of our on-the-way references. Verse 47, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Excuse me, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is really interesting in that he's calling out to the son of David, which is a messianic title, not for conquest, but he's calling out for mercy. This isn't about genealogy. He doesn't know anything about that, and you probably couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting someone descended from the kingly line of David. Um, Bartimaeus recognizes who Yeshua is, and he doesn't need working eyes in order to do it. Was the crowd saying it? Did the Holy Spirit whisper it to him? We don't know. Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And I want you to notice that Yeshua does not refuse the title. The man has used it twice now identified Yeshua as the rightful Davidic king. Verse 49, And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And, you know, so all of a sudden, you know how fickle people are. All of those people who were rebuking him because in an honor-shame society, they don't treat the disabled or women or children with respect, but especially not children or the disabled. Um, folks figured that this disabled, you know, they're somehow afflicted and had it coming. Sad, but true. All right. You know, I was, um, just in a social media conversation today 
um, where people were claiming that folks with diabetes were plagued with demons, even though the Bible is clear in the difference between demonic oppression and sickness. And if you've been following this series, it is no shock to you. When I pointed out that there is more than one type of diabetes and that they have to be treated differently, all hell broke loose. You know, truth is that people are still very superstitious and judgy about sicknesses that they don't understand. And I say this as someone who's performed actual deliverance when necessary. I know demons are real, but most stuff ain't demons, all right? But people love to, you know, have something they figure is either under their control or about sin to point to. You know, thank God Yeshua wasn't like that. But anyway, now that Yeshua says, call him over, you know, oh, they can't do enough. Verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Okay, I love this. He tosses aside his most valuable possession. A beggar's cloak is where he collected alms. And the day when pilgrims were headed to a festival were your best days all year. And cloth wasn't easy to come by. For a poor man, a cloak was what you slept in and what kept you from freezing in the winter. This man doesn't go after Yeshua half-heartedly. Verse 51, And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. All right, here we go. Where have we heard that question before? What do you want me to do for you? Oh, that's right. Right after James and John approached him. What did they want? Unlimited power. Okay. Well, second and third only to Yeshua, of course. But this precious man, all he wants is to recover his sight. He used to be able to see. And he wants to be able to see again. Unlike the disciples, unlike Israel, he knows he is blind, but he remembers what it is to see. He also knows that there is only one way for that to happen, through Yeshua. You know, I, I just, it's easy to miss because in all of these on-the-way uh, dialogues, you've just got Israel as blind, being led along the way that they do not know, and and they don't know that they're blind. But this guy knows he's blind. He knows he wants Yeshua to do something about it. Do we know? We need to know. Uh, verse 52. And Jesus says to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. No touching this time. No mud. No spit. No casting out demons. Just proclamation. Yeshua says, go your way, and way is chodos. Once this man can see, he follows Yeshua on the way, and also chodos, okay? Just to show you the monumental meaning of, meaning of this, we're going to read from Isaiah 42 again. The self-manifestation of Yahweh in the flesh. Yahweh's creative word in the flesh. Okay, so we need to read this again. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths they have not known, 
I will guide them. By the way, this is Yahweh talking, right? I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are things that I do, and I do not forsake them, Israel. Okay, They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look, you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? or blind as the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but does not deserve them. Observe them. Whoops. <laughs> Sorry. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue. Spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. All right. That's Isaiah 42, 16 through 25. Very powerful stuff. And it's very pertinent to everything that we've been reading, and especially on these uh, on the way discourse, because that's exactly what Mark is pointing to the, uh, the new Exodus Spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, it's just not happening the way they thought it would. Now, Yeshua is going around trying to lead blind and deaf Israel in the way ordained by Yahweh for him to restore all of humanity to himself. Some follow, some don't, but they are all blind. And we all are in one way or another. But, you know, we follow knowing that we are blind and trusting that he will cure us bit by bit, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. But we have confidence in the way we do not know because he has never steered us wrong before. Yeah, that doesn't mean people won't do anything terrible to us, but Yahweh can be trusted, all right? Yeshua can be trusted. Um... You know, even though we largely do not understand, we, we still follow. You know, we're every bit as guilty as the disciples as wanting a military messiah to destroy our enemies and sweep all of our problems away. But Yeshua deals with our enemies by saving them, not by hurting them. Look back on the story of Cain and Abel. It's not Yahweh's nature to give up easy. Um, Abel's hardly mentioned. Did you ever notice that? But Yahweh is constantly talking it out with Cain, trying to reason with him, and even places a mark on him to keep him alive so that he can repent and do right again later. You know, this is one determined God, right? And the formerly blind man, Bartimaeus, 
follows. Immediately, he threw away his cloak, right? It's like, boom, he just follows. And, you know, it, it means exactly what it sounds like it means, you know? Who didn't follow? <coughs> Excuse me. The rich young ruler, he didn't follow. The more blindness is removed, the more ardently we will follow him. The more we will leave everything, beggars, cloak and alms behind, you know? Um, and I've mentioned this before, that no prophet in the Hebrew scriptures ever cured blindness. No one cured blindness, period, prophet or not. Let's go over to Isaiah 6 real quick about the curse of blindness on Israel for their disobedience and then to a psalm before closing this out. This is Isaiah 6, verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How about Psalm 146, 5 through 8? Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord of the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And, you know, you might say, well, you know, a lot of that stuff in Isaiah, it was because Israel was being idolatrous, but they're not worshiping, they're not worshiping, um, false gods anymore. Oh, aren't they? Aren't they? There's a lot of false gods you can have. They had turned the temple into a god, uh, putting all their hopes in, uh, in being able to just temple sacrifice their way out of their wickedness and their oppression and refusing to take care of the poor and robbing widows' houses and collaborating with the Romans and, and all the evil that they were doing in the first century so much that the Talmud called the first century a time of gratuitous hatred. Um, so uh, anyway, that sets it for this week. I'll see you later.